minded as we come to your word that you are indeed an outgoing God. You have created that you might make yourself known and you have spoken and your word is precious to us that we might know you for it is our sweet communion with you. Through your word, you strengthen us and give us confidence that we are yours, that you are our God. And so as we come to your word this morning, we, we ask that you would cause us to hear, to believe, and to respond rightly to you. And this through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Uh, our text for this morning is Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter. Chapter one, not to be confused with first Peter chapter two, um, verses 16 through 21. Um, as you're turning there, just a reminder, this is Peter's farewell discourse. Um, he tells us plainly in the first chapter that he expects to die very soon. And Peter writes to this church. He's very concerned for them, especially because there are these false teachers and these false teachers. Uh, one of the things that they are are causing the believers to to try to believe is that Jesus really isn't coming again, that their future is not secure in him. And so they they lead them astray by not only what they teach, but also in the lives that they live in a life of sin and sensuality. They're leading astray, um, essentially calling people to live only for the present pleasures rather than the eternal kingdom of Christ. And so in uh, the very opening beginning, which we talked about last week, um, Peter reminds the believers that they have this new life in Christ and that this new life in Christ is for just that, to live that new life, to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to the one who saved them. And then in verses 16 through 21, our text for the day, Uh, Peter seeks to give us confidence that Jesus is indeed coming again, that the here and now is not all that there is, that the believer has a future in Christ that is sure and that it is worth living for even now. And the way that he's going to instill this confidence is by appealing to first the, the historical first coming of Jesus and then to the reliability of God himself and his promises. And so with that as a backdrop, please um, follow along with me as we read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
I'll never forget my very first um, hiking trip in the mountains. It was a number of years ago. I had the opportunity to join the Colorado men's hiking trip, which I didn't highlight, but you can sign up in that fancy little insert. Um, and I got the first opportunity to go there. I was really excited to go hiking in the mountains. And on this particular year, there was a monsoon that got really confused, confused the Rocky Mountains with the tropics. And it kind of overtook Colorado and it caused a bunch of flooding where we originally were supposed to be camping. And, and so what that meant for us is while we're driving out, uh, we had to make an 11th hour detour south to find a safer campsite. This also meant that all the planning that had gone into our hiking that weekend had to be changed as well. And it gave Rick a great opportunity to start making things up right there on the spot. Um, And so he gathered a couple people and he called it his wise counsel. And um, they they made a few decisions and came back to us a little unsuspecting hikers and said, we have a great plan for the rest of the weekend. And it involves this mountain called Quandry. Yeah, a couple of you. I heard a chuckle. You've been there. You notice that the synonyms for quandary, right? Things like predicament and plight, trouble. I didn't really think about it at the time, but I should have known I was in for a good sermon illustration. But I wasn't really worried about it when they said Mount Quandary. I thought Rick's not going to steer me wrong. And, uh, And at some point that weekend, somebody came and said, hey, it's a 14er. Like that meant something. You know, and I was like, cool. Okay. Uh, I wasn't really worried about it. 14 is not that big of a number. Um, you know, the mountains are cool. Flowers are pretty. Um, and, uh, you know, how hard can it be? I was in shape at one point in my life when I was like 20. And so I thought, how hard could it be? And so on that Saturday, we started our hike and, and it was fun for a while. Um, and then we got to the tree line and, and the fun kind of just disappeared and, um, hiking above the tree line on quandary is a lot like, like you feel like ants marching up a boulder staircase really to your own demise. Like the, the fun that you had is, is gone and, and really only pure pride keeps you moving up the mountain. And I'm pretty confident that at one point, I mean, it was steep enough that I was crawling on my hands and feet up the steepest point. And I know for sure that I was, I was crying. I was trying to hide it from my hiking group, but I was, I was crying. But it was really windy as my eyes were watering. Um, and at that point, I was, was pretty miserable. Um, but then there came this great moment. It was a moment of relief because you sort of crest this this point and, and you realize it just, it, it levels off and, and the walk to the summit is, is a cakewalk really. And you're like, ah, oh, I've made it. I'm not actually there yet, but I've made it. And, uh, and I can see the end. And, and I remember, um, standing there, um, thinking about this and, uh, I was there with Josh McBain and we, we did this final little leg together and we were there and, and we realized that the rest of our hiking group had stopped about the point that I started, started crying a little bit further down the mountain. And, and we looked at each other and, and we were like, they can make it, right? Like if they only knew that all they have to do is get here. If somebody could tell them that their climbing is not in vain, then I'm pretty confident that they will find the energy to keep going. 
And so because we were full of energy at this point, like we sort of bounded back down like gazelles on the side of a mountain. So we thought, you know, and, uh, and we get to him and, and we say, guys, like we're like, you're almost there. If you could just get to that point right there, like you, you've made it. It's not the summit, but, but once you get there, it's simple. And the craziest thing happened. They actually believed us. And I'm pretty sure that had we had come by that spot the first time and uh, before we had come back down, if we had looked at these guys and said, look, guys, all I really think that if we could just get to that false summit right there, then all will be well. You know, and I'm even confident that Terry Gilliland, had I said that, would have chucked me off the side of a mountain. Um, But they believed us. Because we had been there, we had experienced it for ourselves, and suddenly our words were now reliable, and it gave them confidence to continue on and to make it to the summit. And this first hiking trip on Mount Plight reminds me that at various points in our lives, we need confidence. We need confidence that the journey that we're making in Christ is not in vain. That the promise to summit into God's presence is real and sure for us. And we need this confidence because right now, life is hard. And if we're honest, we might admit that at various points, uh, some may be brief and others more prolonged, that we doubt that the journey we're making is really worth it. And we know these moments, it's the moments where sadness fills our days, where disappointments are found around every corner, where our frustrations rage on, fear abounds, our struggle with sin seems to be a failing one, and we just anticipate our next failure. And in these moments, if we would admit, honestly to ourselves, sometimes we wonder if this life of faith is really worth it. Is Christ-likeness really worth it when moral resign would seem so much easier? Is grace and gentleness worth it when all I really want to do is speak my mind and, and sharpen a little iron? Is telling the truth worth it when... Self-preservation seems a safer route. Is humility worth it when all our soul really wants is recognition and maybe even a little glory? Is it worth it? The examples are numerous. And in these moments, what we need is confidence, assurance, the reminder that this journey forward in Christ really is worth it. And it's not only our circumstances and our internal experiences and our own sin that that causes us to doubt and to wonder, but it's it's also the world that we live in. Because this world is constantly calling out to us to believe that all of this isn't really true, that this life of faith is not worth the journey because all that there really is is the here and now, this physical world that Our passions and desires are what define what is right and good for us. That Christianity is nothing more than a bigoted, chauvinistic, homophobic, hateful, and ignorant religion. And we hear this. And we hear these voices and we wonder, is it really worth living 
before these voices. And Peter knows this. He knows that life is hard and these voices call out to us to live in unbelief. And his intention is to infuse confidence in his readers that God's word is sure. That he is trustworthy and true. That we climb, though hard it might be, as we continue, we will indeed reach the summits. Our final goal goal of living in the very presence of of Christ himself. And when we reach that point, all of our miseries and our tensions and our troubles will be resolved and those voices will be silenced. And so the fundamental pastoral comfort of this passage is that we have confidence that our future is secure in Jesus, that God will fulfill his promise that Christ has come And he's coming again. And when he does, our future with him will be in his glory. So the question is, how does Peter seek to give this confidence? How does he try to assure us that Christ is indeed coming again and that our future is secure? And he appeals in this passage to two realities. First, he appeals to the objective historical reality of Christ's first coming. And second, he appeals to the very testimony of God himself and his very promises. And so we're going to take a look at that. First, we have confidence because of the historical reality of Jesus's first coming. Verse 16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter here roots the gospel in history, in real, reliable facts. He says, this isn't some concocted story that comes from the imagination of the apostles, but rather these are real events in which they were made to be eyewitnesses, observers, spectators with backstage passes. And this is important because if the gospel is not historical, if it's not an objective historical reality, and it's just simply not true. And if it's not true, it has no power to affect our present. And it certainly has no power to secure our future standing before God. And the apostles knew the importance of establishing the historicity of the gospel. Um, in, in the apostle John, in his first letter, first John, he opens that letter with these words. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. He says, we've heard it with our very own ears. We've seen it with our very own eyes. We've touched him with our very own hands. And now we tell you about it. Paul in first Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of the resurrection. And in verses three through eight, he says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. One of my favorite lines in, in, in the scriptures, which you might think is odd, but it's, it's here. And it's when Paul says, most of whom are still alive. I love it because he refers to these 500 people that saw the risen Jesus. And he says, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm making this up, go check with them. This wasn't done in some private corner for me to invent and to imagine, but it was, it was, it was public. It was a real thing and people know it and you can verify it for yourself. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, begins uh, this way in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, Luke seeks to write verifiable eyewitness testimony and chronicle those events as history. And when he writes Luke and Acts, this isn't some distant future time, but it's many of those who were there and witnessed it and experienced Jesus for himself and the events that surrounded him were still alive. He's not trying to write myth here, but real history. And so you might be wondering, okay, it's real objective historical uh, reality, but, but why is that significant for us here in the second coming of Christ? And it's significant because the fact that he experienced it firsthand, right, is, is proof. It's a guarantee that what has happened in history is true. And it also means that what will happen in history will be true as well. What I mean by this is the, the first coming of Jesus secures the reality of the second. This is John. For John, he, he says, because we saw Jesus and we experienced him and we know what he did and we touched him with our very own hands, we know that he's the one who holds eternal life for us. Uh, for Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, because Jesus has risen, we have confidence. We know that we too will rise and live with him in these imperishable bodies for all of eternity. And for Peter, he says that because he saw the powerful coming of Jesus, He's confident that Jesus is coming again in power. This was Paul's logic in a well-known passage in Romans 8, verse 32. And, and, and Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In the original, this question anticipates a negative answer. It's, it's essentially a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Put positively, what Paul is saying is in emphasizing if God has given his 
precious son to redeem us. He will complete that redemption in us. Christ did not die in vain. God will not fail on the back end of his work and his promise. Our future redemption is secure because Christ died. And so for Peter, when he says that they were eyewitnesses of this power and coming of Jesus, what he's saying is that the incarnation, the, 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 the miracles of Jesus, his teaching, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension are a foretaste and a guarantee of what's to come. If we've seen his powerful first coming, will we not also see his power in coming again? Now, Peter's a good preacher. He gives us an illustration here to drive home the point. Um, And he speaks of the transfiguration in verses 17 and 18. He writes, for when he received honor and glory from God, the father, The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, this event, this transfiguring event is recorded for us in the three synoptic gospels in Matthew 17, Luke 9 and Mark 9. And I read from it earlier, Jesus took Peter and James and John up on this mountain with him. And there the glory of Christ's divinity is brilliant, comes onto brilliant display, causing the three disciples to tremble in, in fear. And this glorious display is a glimpse of our eternal reality that will be lived in the presence of the glorified Christ. And, and it's sure because God has said so. Uh, this is the point of having Elijah and Moses on the mountain. They represent Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And the point is this, that Christ is the main event, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises represented in Moses and Elijah. That Jesus is the climax of history. And Moses and Elijah are there to testify to the fact that God has kept his word. That he has fulfilled his promises. That the day of the Lord has come. Christ is here. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is seen as this one event that's going to come. And where atonement happens and the new heavens and the new earth comes and all things are are brought to redemption. And and what we've learned after the coming of Christ is, is that there still is this one day of the Lord. It's just separated by time. There's the first coming and the second coming. One event separated by time. The first guarantees the second, the redemption of all things. And the appeal to these Old Testament promises represented by Moses and Elijah really brings to us the the second reason that we have confidence that our future is secure in Christ. And that God keeps his promises. The promise of God 
is where we hang our hats for our future in Christ. Notice how Peter zeroes in on the voice of God the Father in that transfiguring event. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I love my son. And that's significant for us. And it's significant for us because the love of the father and the son is directly related to their faithfulness to one another. The the promises they make and will fulfill to the other. And for us, we are caught up in those promises. We're caught up in those promises of the love between the Father and the Son in the Spirit. We get a picture of this in John 17. I do want you to turn to John 17. Because there's so much here, it really is hard to just simply summarize. And so I'm going to read the entire chapter, and I want you to follow along. This is John's, or excuse me, Jesus's high priestly prayer. And it really is like an intimate window into the inner life of the Trinity. And what I want you to notice is not only the inner life of the Trinity, the promises and this relationship between, between, between God himself, but also how we are wrapped up in it. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's a lot. I know. But here's the thing that I want you to get from all of that. The Father and the Son love one another. And because they love one another, they keep their promises to the other. And we, believers in Jesus, are caught up in those promises. You see, Jesus keeps us for all of eternity because he loves the Father. And the Father glorifies Jesus and will glorify us who are in him because he loves the Son. And we will abide and abound and enjoy this great love forevermore. Because of the love that exists within God himself. You see, the very character of God Himself, The relationship between the Father and the Son is at stake in the keeping of His promises. If He does not keep His promises, He does not love the Son. If He doesn't keep His promises, He does not love the Father. But God is Love. He keeps his promises. And we are wrapped up in that love. See, the very character of God himself, his faithfulness to keep his promise, promises, is our confidence that our future is secure in Christ. And when we lack this confidence and we keep making this journey of faith, we do not seek confidence within ourselves. We do not rest and find assurance in the quality of our own faith or our own resolve. But instead, we continue to trust Jesus. That God himself has done all that is necessary for our ultimate salvation through Christ in his life, death and resurrection. And is coming again. We continue to trust that that Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for you in his presence. We continue to trust that he's with you even now. 
and forevermore. And we continue to trust that he keeps us in himself and this for his glory and indeed for our future good. Our future is as sure as God himself is sure. Think about that. Your future as a son or daughter of Jesus, the King Most High, is as sure as he himself is sure. And on many days, this is our only confidence. And in fact, it is the only confidence that we need to keep going, to keep believing, to keep loving, and to keep living for his glory. And the place that Peter calls our attention to is the place in which we know his promises is the scripture. In verse 19, He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Holy Spirit. He says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, contextually, I, I think that Peter is saying what we've already drawn uh, from his emphasis on his own eyewitness testimony. That because God has fulfilled his Old Testament promises in history, and because we've seen it and we've experienced for ourselves, we have even more confidence that he will fulfill all his promises that are still yet to come. And this is the point that he gets to in the second part of verse 19, when he says, to which, meaning the scriptures that testify of Jesus, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We will do well to pay attention to God's word because it is a lamp for us in a dark place, in a world darkened by sin and death. And it is a light that illuminates our future when the day dawns. That is, when Christ returns. And when the morning star rises in our hearts, meaning when God completes his work in us, perfecting us in glory. And that really is the confidence that we need even now. When we despair, See, it's the promise of his return that is our delight. When we fall again and again to our sinful desires, it's the promise of his forgiveness through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus 
that is our assurance. When we think ourselves worthless and unworthy of love, it is the promise of his adoption, the eternal love of God that is our joy. When we are afraid and anxious about what lies ahead, it's the promise of his presence that is our resting place. When justice doesn't come, it's the promise of his vindication that is our help. When we face death, it's the promise of our resurrection that is our hope. And when voices rise against us, it's the promise of his eternal kingdom that is our comfort. It's his promises. They are as sure as God himself is sure. And they are written all over the pages of scripture. And what they declare to us is that Christ has come and that Christ is coming again. Our future is secure in Christ. And because our future is secure in Christ, we keep climbing, knowing that we will indeed summit heavenly Mount Zion and there bask in the glory, presence, and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we keep climbing. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, how wonderful it is to call you Father. A title that belongs to Jesus. And you have made ours Put it on our lips because you have wrapped us up in your eternal love. Father, we're thankful that you have so set your love upon us that we might know you. That we might trust you. That we might fall upon Jesus as the source of our lives. Knowing that his death has, has given us peace with you. And that in him that we will one day rise to imperishable bodies, that you will perfect us and complete us and we will live with you for all of eternity. And we anticipate the experience of knowing that our miseries and troubles have passed, that tears are wiped away, that voices are silenced. But most, most especially what we anticipate is seeing you. Knowing you by sight and not only by faith. And so we pray that this morning that you would indeed strengthen us to go out and continue to live knowing that our future is secure in Jesus. Help us to trust your scriptures, to live our lives according to them and depend upon them as our means of your grace. 
And this we pray through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please stand to receive God's benediction as you go.